Now this morning I invite you to take your Bibles please and turn with me to John's Gospel. We want to begin a new series of messages from John chapter 17 and for the next three or four weeks we're going to be digging into this chapter, John 17. It's probably one of the most unique and powerful prayers in all of Scripture because it is the prayer Christ prays as he is preparing himself to go to the cross. So will you please turn to John 17, and we're going to read the first five verses together. Will you please stand in honor of the Word of God? After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you have granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you with thanksgiving for your many blessings, for your watchful care over every dimension of our lives, for looking after us this past week and bringing us together again today to learn more of you and to get a glimpse into your heart as you were getting ready to lay down your life for each one of us. Lord, we have difficulty comprehending the incredible wrestling that you did with your Father as you contemplated taking of that cup of suffering and dying for us. And in this prayer, Lord, we see your heart as we've never seen it before. And I pray that our lives might be challenged and changed as we understand in a new way how much you really love us and what it cost you to purchase our salvation at Calvary. Thank you again for your presence with us today. Keep us, Lord, close to yourself. Help us to keep on abiding in you. We love you so much. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Our Lord's Prayer is a prayer that I believe not only provides uh, inspiration for us and is a model that all of us as Christ followers should emulate, but it is also a prayer that reveals to us the heart of our Savior in a way in which we've never really seen it before. In the words of Herbert Lockyer, this is a prayer of all prayers. Within these 26 verses of this 17th chapter, commonly known as Christ's high priestly prayer, we see how much he longs to be reunited with his Father in heaven, we hear him pray for us as no one else could ever pray for us. 
And we also see his desire that those who have been changed by the power of the cross would experience a unity and a love for one another that would be contagious. That would be a kind of a contagious love that, that literally would draw all people to himself. In fact, Jesus says, if I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. The greatest drawing card for the church today is the Lord Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And these are the, some of the very last words that our Lord expresses as he prepares himself now to fulfill the mission of the Father in going to the cross and laying down his life for you and for me. Now, the last words of a person are so important. When we are in the presence of a person or a loved one, a friend who is dying, we want to get as close to them as we can to hear even a whisper of what they're saying. I remember being at the bedside of my father. My dad was a man that I love, and I loved more than anything else other than Jesus and my wife. But he was a man of God. He was 92 years of age, and he was in the hospital and just about ready to go home to Jesus. And I wanted to hear every word that he would say. Just a few weeks ago, he had talked to me on the phone, and he had said, John, he said, he said, I've been studying the book of Hebrews, and he says, he says, you need to study it in the Greek, because the, the, the Greek language, Dad loved to translate the Greek, and he said, John, just study, he said, study Hebrews in the Greek, he said, it is so rich, it will transform your life. And then as I was close to him and some of his last words to me were, John, keep the family together. Do everything to keep the family together. The words of a person just as they about ready to depart are so important. And here, the Lord Jesus in John 17 is praying to the Father because now the cross is really in the forefront of his mind. He's been preparing his disciples all the time for his soon departure. For example, we see in the previous chapter in John 16, in verse 28, he says to his disciples, he says, I came from the Father and entered the world. Now I'm leaving the world and going back to the Father. He's seeking to prepare them. They never seem to get it. But in the subsequent verses, we discover that the disciples finally grasp what Jesus has been saying to them. Notice in verse 29, Then Jesus' disciples said, Now you are speaking clearly and without figures of speech. Now we can see that you know all things and that you do not even need to have anyone ask you questions. This makes us believe that you came from God. They finally get it. And in the very next verse, notice, Jesus with a sigh says, you believe at last. <laughs> you finally get it. You believe at last. 
And then he goes on to say in verse 32, But a time is coming and has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home. You will leave me all alone. Yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. He reminds them that as he fulfills the Father's will, these men who he has invested his life in for the last three years are all going to scatter and he's all going to be left alone but he's not really alone because his father is going to be with him and then he gives them these words of great hope in verse 33 I have told you these things so that notice the text so that in me you may have peace notice Peace is found in a person. It is not found through some kind of external reality. It is found in the person of Jesus. In me, you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And as soon as he says these words, we come to John 17, and we see the Lord Jesus looking up to heaven and praying this prayer. Father, the time has come. Underscore that phrase. The time has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. This, you see, I believe is the real Lord's Prayer. Oftentimes we think the Lord's Prayer is the prayer he taught his disciples to pray over in Matthew chapter 6. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. That prayer could more appropriately be called the disciples' prayer because that was the prayer the Lord Jesus taught his disciples when they asked him the question, Lord, teach us to pray. But I believe that the real Lord's prayer is here in John 17, where he pours out his heart to his father. Ray Steadman and others have called this particular chapter the Holy of Holies in the New Testament. Here in John 17, we have this very intimate communion between the Lord Jesus and his father. This prayer is the longest prayer of Christ in the scriptures. We see many shorter prayers of Christ, but this is the longest one, and we sense our Lord's passion for himself. He desires to be restored to the former glory he left behind when he came to earth and put on human flesh to go to the cross and die for us. He longs to be restored to that uh, former glory, uh, but he also has a passion for his disciples and for the world. And in this particular prayer, he prays for three specific things. Number one, he prays in John 17, 1 to 5, he prays for the full restoration of his former glory. He prays that this glory that he left behind when he came to earth and was born as a human being in that little city of Bethlehem and laid in the cradle, he set aside his glory to put on human flesh to identify with you and with me and now he is praying that 
he be restored to that glory that was temporarily laid aside in order that he might provide salvation for us. Number two, in John 17, 6 to 19, he prays for the firm preservation of his disciples and the aftermath of his departure. His concern in that paragraph is that his disciples be protected from the evil one and that they remain solidly anchored to God's word. That particular passage of scripture that we're going to look at next time we're together is a powerful reminder that the Lord prays for us and he prays that we be kept from the evil one and that we remain solidly firm in the context of his love. And then lastly, in John 17, 20 to 26, <coughs> excuse me, he prays for this final unification and spiritual oneness of his church. He prays that those who identify with him, with those who have put their personal faith and trust in him, that they experience that spiritual bond, that spiritual unity that he and his father experience. And he says, I want the world to know that you love each other and are unified in spirit because that is one of the ways in which the world will actually believe that I am the Christ. Notice in verse 21, that all of them may be one Father, just as you are in me and I in you. May they also be in us, notice the text, so that, put a circle around it, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. You see, when the body of Christ actually is the body of Christ and operates in a unified fashion, where we understand that, yes, there may be differences of opinion, and that's okay, but our unity is not disrupted by any source of discord or dislike that would pull us away from one another. The thing that keeps the world from taking the church seriously is that we have missed the boat on this particular request that he has for his father. And there are many of our young people today, there are many of the millennials that have turned the church off because they've seen all the disruption, they've seen all the discord, they've heard all the conversations over the dinner table, they've heard all this stuff and instead of being presented as a unified church, we pride ourselves most on our differences than we do on our commonalities. And how sad this is. Do you realize that across this particular region, there are many churches that are preaching the gospel of Christ. That are lifting up Jesus Christ. We, they are our brothers and sisters just as... We all are brothers and sisters in Christ. And the world will never really take Jesus seriously until they see us as the body of Christ conducting ourselves in a unified manner. This is so important for us to grasp. We don't understand that this great commission that has been given more than 2,000 years ago, we, we haven't even scratched the surface of accomplishing it. And why? For many of us, 
It's because we've allowed division and bad feelings exist between ourselves and others in the body of Christ. And the world picks up on that. And the world knows that. And it breaks Jesus' heart. And so in this last section, he is pleading with the body of Christ to exercise that spiritual unity that will be attractive to the world, that they will want the God and the gospel that we say we embrace that many times we don't flesh out in relationships with each other. And so he's praying for each of these requests. And this morning, as we get ready to come around the table of the Lord, I want us to look back at this first section, this intimate conversation between the Lord and his followers and his Father. And he begins with an awesome affirmation. Notice he says, Father, the time has come. Underscore those words. Those words are deeply significant. Throughout his final days, as he prepares to go to the cross, he is aware that everything he says and does has special significance. And throughout the Gospel of John, it's obvious that Jesus is fully aware of the time calendar. For example, in John chapter 2 and verse 4, when Mary, his mother, speaks to him about the lack of wine at the wedding in Cana of Galilee and is seeking to nudge him to do something about it, to create uh, some calmness in that social situation because they had run out of wine, uh, she wants him to intervene and, and perform some type of a miracle. And... Though Jesus does perform the miracle, he informs her in chapter 2 and verse 4, his time has not yet come. He performs the miracle, but he does not reveal his Messiahship. And then you go into chapter 7 and verse 8, the occasion of being urged by his own brothers to go to Jerusalem to gain personal notoriety for himself. He refuses to do this because, according to John 7 and verse 8, the right time has not yet come. On two other occasions, John records that Jesus escapes death at the hands of his enemies for one reason, and one reason only, his time had not yet come. But now with the cross, only hours away, with the cross looming fresh and real in his mind, the time for which he has entered the world, that time has come. And for Christ, it means certain death, but also a restoration to the former glory that he experienced with the Father. You see this in John chapter 12, verses 23 and 24. Notice, he says, The hour has come for me, for the Son of Man, to be glorified. I tell you the truth, that unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. And then down to verse 20, 
uh, 7 and 28. Notice. He says, Father, save me from the world or save me from this hour. No, it was, notice, underscored, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. This is the time that had been planned for in the eternal counsels of God that one moment in time the Son who the Father revealed to the world through this incredible incarnation that the time would come for him to fulfill his reason for being. To men the cross represented an object of shame an instrument of shame but to Christ the cross was the means to glory it was the means whereby he could be restored now to his former glory that he had enjoyed with the Father from eternity past now Christ's prayer for glorification here focuses on two key realities number one it focuses on the authority of the Father notice verse 2 for you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those that you have given to him. He understands that the Father has given him the authority to extend, first of all, eternal life to those whom the Father has given him. And he views every single one of us who have been saved by personal faith in Christ, he considers all of us as gifts that he is now giving back to the Father. Because of our personal faith and trust in Christ, you understand this, we are so precious that now the Lord Jesus, as he gets ready to go to the cross, he says, by the authority you've given to me, I can extend eternal life to them. I'm giving them back to you. He gives God's people back to the Father. Because the Father had given him the authority to extend eternal life to those who believe. And this was the purpose of Christ throughout his ministry. John speaks of this again and again. He came for one purpose and that is to give life to every single man, woman, boy and girl. For instance, in John 1.4 we read, In him was life. And that life was the light of men. John 3, 14 and 15. The Son of God must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. There it is again. John 4. The water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. John 5, 21. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so... The Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. And then John eleven twenty five to 26, Jesus is speaking and he says, I myself am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never, no, never die. Not only has the Son been given the authority to extend eternal life he's been given the authority to establish a relationship between God 
and man. Notice verse 3. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. There is a connection. The Bible says that Jesus Christ is the mediator between God and man. And through what Christ did for us at the cross, we can have a growing knowledge of God. Notice, a knowledge of the true God. Not a false God, but of the true God. My friends, there is no greater pursuit in life. Listen to me carefully. No greater pursuit in life than knowing God. To have a passion to know Him. To know Him at a deeper level. To experience His presence and His power. To know the living God, the only true God. This is our greatest pursuit that any of us can be in pursuit after. The Apostle Paul spoke of it this way in Philippians 3 and verse 10. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings becoming like him in his death. Friends, the longer we know Christ, we need to be in a, a deeper pursuit after him than anything that would occupy our minds here on earth. To know him, to know his power, to know his presence, to have fellowship with him, even in his sufferings. And that's when sometimes we pull back, but it's through those sufferings that we really get to know him in a way that we've never, ever known him before. Jeremiah observes that knowing God is the only thing over which we as Christ followers should ever boast. In Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24, this is what the Lord says, Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom, or the strong man boast of his strength, or the rich man boast of his riches. But here it is. Let him boast, boast about this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who exercises kindness, that is, steadfast love, justice, and righteousness on earth. You see, knowing God has a beginning point. We call that salvation. But that's just the beginning. He wants us to grow deeper and deeper and deeper into a knowledge of who he is. That only comes as we submit to the scriptures. And allow the scriptures to become our guidebook for living. This growing relationship to connection with God is what humans crave more than anything else, so oftentimes they don't even realize it. It's like Billy Graham used to say, he said there was within every man, woman, boy, and girl an emptiness, a cavity that only God can fill. And when God fills that with his presence as we submit to him and experience his salvation, what he is praying here is that that initial salvation will be something that 
is so prized that that's the only thing that we will ever boast about is our relationship to him. This means the end of loneliness and initiates the possibility of satisfaction. You see, people today are looking for satisfaction in all the wrong places. The only place of absolute pure satisfaction is in a relationship with the Lord Jesus. That I may know him, the power of his resurrection. If I'm going to boast, I'm going to boast about only one thing. And that is the power of Christ who has transformed me. And as we will be partaking of communion in just a few moments. And we take of the bread and the cup. And you hold those elements in your fingers, in your hands. Today you're satisfied. Jesus satisfies the deepest longings of our heart. There's no need to look for any place else or for anyone else when you experience the power and presence of Jesus. You are completely satisfied. And Christ prays fully aware of his part in providing eternal life and he says that he's made it possible for us to experience the greatest connection in life and that is connectedness to the living God and so he prays with a focus on the authority that the father has given to him and then number two his second focus is the accomplishment of the Son. Notice in verse 4, he says, I have brought you glory, he's speaking here to the Father, I brought to you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Now, Jesus has not yet gone to the cross, but he speaks as if he's already been crucified. He speaks as if those nails have already been driven into his hands and the spear has been thrust into his side and the crown of thorns has been crushed on his brow. He speaks as if that act of crucifixion has already happened. And he says, says Father, he said, I, I have been obedient to you. You remember throughout his life, everything Jesus did, he did in response to the Father. He was always conscious that Every action, every attitude, it was because of his allegiance, his obedience to the Father. And so he prays, I've completed the work. And when was that work completed? Just a few days hence, when hanging from the cross, Jesus would exclaim with, energy that only the Father could give him. It stands finished. The Greek is a perfect tense. It stands finished and the effects continuing. There's not one single thing you or I can add to the finished work of Jesus Christ. He purchased us. It is finished. 
and he presents himself back to his father. Because of the completing work that the father assigns to him, he prays now that he would be restored to this former glory that he relinquished when he entered our human world. And there's a new intensity in his voice. Notice in verse 5, And now, Father, Father, please glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Do we understand anything of the cost that Jesus Christ paid for our salvation? He left the glory of God, the brilliance that he had enjoyed for all of eternity. He left it all for us. And now he wants to be restored to that former glory because he has been faithful in completing the work that the Father had asked him to do. The time has come. It's time now to fulfill the reason you first sent me. And it's on the basis of the Son's obedience to the Father's plan that now he appeals to the Father to restore him to that pristine state of co-equality in glory which he possessed from eternity past as part of the triune God. It's interesting that the Apostle Paul picks up on this theme. If you'll flip over to Philippians, keep your finger there in John 17, but flip over to Philippians chapter 2 where you see this very clearly described. The Apostle Paul speaks of what Jesus did for us beginning at verse 6 of chapter 2, who being in the very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. The one who had all the glories of heaven made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. Notice, and found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death. Some translations put it, he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus was born to die. Most people are born to live. Jesus is born to die. He leaves heaven's glories and puts on our our flesh, our sinful flesh. The Bible says, He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. He did it for us. He left the glories of heaven for us. He went to the cross for us. He bore your sin and my sin so that we could be liberated from sin and have the hope of life eternal. He did it all for us. And the Father sees what the Son does. And notice in verse 9, Therefore, put a circle around it, because of what the Son did, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Notice, to the glory of of the Father. 
one of these days, every knee will bow to the Son because of his obedience to the Father. Because he did for us what none of us could ever do for ourselves. And now he prays, Lord, I want to be restored. I've accomplished it. Even though at this moment he hasn't yet, but he prays as if he has. He prays with faith, believing that he's going to fulfill the Father's plan, that the Father's going to exalt him and restore him to his former glory. And it's because of the authority vested in the Son by the Father and the accomplishment of Son's plan that the Father gave him that you and I can have a living relationship with God himself. It's available to all. And the end result of all of this is that the Father glorifies the Son and the Son glorifies the Father. Obedience to God always brings blessing, honor, majesty, and great victory. For Christ, when his time had come, for so many times he had said, my time has not yet come, my time has not yet come. But now in this prayer, he says, my time has come. This was an opportunity for him to fulfill the very reason of his existence. What about you this morning? Have you fulfilled the reason for your existence? Have you put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, the only one who can save you, the only one who can give you peace in the midst of troubling times? Has your time come even today? The Bible says today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. If you've never ever experienced a personal relationship with Jesus, the most important thing for you to do, to do right now is to understand that today is your time. Tomorrow may be too late. You realize none of us have any guarantees. <laughs> the minute we walk out this door, we don't know what's going to happen. But if we have Jesus living in our hearts, we know that if anything does happen to us that we didn't expect, that we'll go immediately into his presence. And that, by the way, is the greatest legacy you can ever leave a loved one, is that they know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you've made your peace with God because you have put your faith in the person of peace who has overcome the world and who longs to impart eternal life to you. For Christ, the cross was that supreme moment. For you today, it may be your supreme moment as well. But you need to do a couple of things. Number one, acknowledge Jesus Christ as God. Acknowledge him to be the one who can save you from your sins. 
You can't save yourself. You can't pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. It doesn't work that way. You must acknowledge that Jesus is God and that we are not. You are not the one who holds destiny in your hands. Your destiny is in the hands of the one who loved you and gave himself for you. Number two, accept the provision of the cross. Exchange today personal self-reliance for Christ's allegiance. Put your hand in the hand of the one who from the beginning of time knew his destiny and fulfilled it so that you and I could experience eternal life, life that would last forever. And then once you've made that decision, once you've made that commitment, announce it to others. Let others know what Jesus has done for you. I'm, I'm convinced that there are literally hundreds and thousands of people that are just waiting for a Christ follower to start a conversation with them about Jesus. You have been given the greatest gift that could ever be given, salvation. Don't keep it to yourself. Share it with others. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we prepare now to come around your table, I pray that first of all we would be grateful for the salvation that we have received. It's not by works of righteousness that we are justified, but it's by the precious broken body of Christ. And it's through his shed blood that we have forgiveness. And so, Lord, I pray if there's anyone here today who has not yet put their personal faith and trust in you, that right now they would just pray a very simple prayer, Lord Jesus, I need you. I recognize today that you are the living God and you went to the cross for me and you died in my place. You suffered in my place. You took the punishment I deserve so I could be set free. Lord, I'm a sinner. Please cleanse me from all sin. I invite you to be my Lord and Master. Come into my life and save me. Prepare a place in heaven for me so that I can receive those welcome words when one day I see you face to face. Welcome, welcome, my child, into the glories of heaven. If you need to pray that prayer, just pray it very quietly right now. There are those of you that maybe haven't been living as close to the Lord as you need to. Take these quiet moments and just renew your dedication to him. Put your hand in those nail-scarred hands and determine to live life on God's terms, not yours any longer. As we partake of the bread and the elements, understand the incredible cost of our salvation. Lord, we do love you. We 
have inadequate words even to express to you what we feel. But we are so thankful that you were willing to die for us. It's because of your body being broken that our broken bodies can be made whole. That spiritual life no longer can elude us. We can experience the power of a living Christ as we surrender to you. And so as we partake of the bread, we do so in remembrance for all that you have done for us. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.